Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This morning we're going to look at verses 17 through 34, which will be preparation for our observance of the Lord's Supper, but also will be instructive to our souls and correct us. One of the things that the Word of God does, it corrects us where we need correction in our understanding and in our application of that understanding. So we're grateful for the Word of God, for the Holy Spirit who inspired it, and for the Holy Spirit who illuminates it to our hearts. We won't understand anything unless He teaches us. I come to this responsibility with that in mind every time I stand in this place to teach God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter eleven seventeen in the New American Standard Bible reads as follows. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number asleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that they will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. A student nurse was doing his work, learning how he is to nurse in 
the emergency room. And to his great surprise, and it was rather unnerving to see that his pastor was rolled in to that area and he was assigned to take his vital signs. He was a little bit discombobulated by the appearance of his pastor. And when he reached for the thermometer, he accidentally put his hand on a barometer, put it in the mouth of the pastor, left for a few moments after exchanging some words of encouragement with his pastor. When he came back, he took the barometer out and it said dry and windy. Many of us have endured many dry and windy messages through the mouth of our pastor. Too many words with too little meaning. And today we want to come to this passage of scripture and remember what the great Baptist scholar A.T. Robertson said about this passage of scripture and the Lord's Supper in particular. He said, the Lord's Supper is the great preacher of Christ's death until he comes. It is a gospel-centered act, this observance of the Lord's Supper. And we are invited not only to observe it, but according to this passage of Scripture, we are to be a part of the development and delivery of this wordless sermon, if you will. In order to give a message from the Lord, there is preparation that is required, and this is no different. How are we, as a body of believers, all of us who know Jesus, how are we to participate in the preparation of this most auspicious of all suppers, the Lord's Supper? There are two commands which are given to us in this passage of Scripture. If you'll look again at verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 11, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often you drink it in remembrance of me. Twice, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. What do you suppose Jesus had in mind when he gave that command? Well, let me speculate, and this is educated speculation. I suggest to you that he was thinking about what he was going to go through in the next few hours to secure our salvation. And he knew that at least part of that time, these men who were part of his inner circle, the apostles, one, had already departed by this time. There were only 11 left. He knew they were going to observe some of the things and he wanted them to remember these things and to use the Lord's Supper as a visual and tangible expression of that so that they would never forget how indebted they were to Jesus for who he is and what he has done. I can only imagine that Jesus was thinking about the impending date he had with the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know that the Garden of Gethsemane was Jesus' most favorite place to go when he was in the region of Jerusalem. He found great solace there. He found great fellowship with the Father there. He was constantly in fellowship with the Father, but just like 
in our cases, sometimes there are special places where we can go alone and be quiet and we sense the presence of the Lord. Jesus had that kind of connection to the Father, especially in the Garden of Gethsemane. We know what the gospel writers tell us about that event. He goes there with his three closer associates, Peter, James, and John, having left the other eight on the outskirts of the garden, and they go into the garden a little more deeply. And then Jesus says to the three of them, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. He knew what they were going to face. He knew what he was about to face. He knew that prior to history, the Father and the Holy Spirit and Jesus put together the plan of salvation. And Jesus consented to his role as Redeemer. He knew what was coming for him. In his humanity, he fought that in the sense, not that he sinned, but that he was tempted not to go forward. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 18, this verse had eluded me for I don't know how many years, probably 40 years of reading the Bible. Do you know when you're reading the Bible, sometimes you just read something and it doesn't register with you? But that particular verse talked about how Jesus suffered in what he was tempted. Jesus suffered in the Garden of Gethsemane as he came before the Father and he lay prostrate on the ground and he said, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. He goes back out of the garden and rather than finding his three closest associates there in prayer supporting him, he finds that they are wearied by all the emotional draining that had taken place that entire week coming in on what we call the triumphal entry of Christ on Palm Sunday and everything that went on throughout the week and they were exhausted. They'd just been told by the Lord that he was leaving them and it grieved them deeply. Jesus says to them, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. We can't really fault those men. We probably would have done likewise. But he comes out and he was disappointed. He goes back a second time, comes out again, same thing. Three times he asked the Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. And Luke in his gospel, remembering that Luke was a medical doctor by training, very interested in all things medical as well as historical, tells us how Jesus sweat what appeared to be drops of great blood. The agony was so intense for the Lord. And he told them before he went in the first time, he said, men, listen, my soul is deeply distressed, even to the point of death. Some of you feel that way at times. You feel like your soul is so stretched out and so battered and beaten that you don't know whether you can go on anymore. But remember, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tried beyond what you can bear. But when you are tried, He will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. It was true for Jesus. The Father gave Him a way out, didn't He? He agonized in the garden. The loneliness is writ large by the gospel writers. Loneliness that we cannot understand. He knew the impending loneliness which would be exaggerated to the nth degree after he would be betrayed in that same garden by one of his associates, Judas. After having been betrayed, he would be arrested. He would be marched to the house of the high priest Caiaphas. He would have a 
kangaroo court try him. It was all botched up from the law of the Sanhedrin over which Caiaphas presided as the chief priest. It was terrible. A verdict was rendered that was a capital sentence, a death sentence according to the law of the Jews. And that was a death sentence that was not according to their own rules. They were good about making rules. And they were also equally good about stretching the rules and going around the rules. Exactly how that happened, we don't know. But what we do know is once a capital offense was registered and the person was found guilty of it, there would be an entire 24-hour period that would have to pass before the sentence was executed just in case some of the members of the Sanhedrin had a change of heart and mind. There was no such thing that happened because first of all, the trial was illegal. It occurred at nighttime and such trials only would begin during the day. So Jesus was anticipating all of that as he was saying to his men, as he was looking forward, remember me, remember who I am. Remember what I've done. Remember the things that you have seen me do. Remember the things which I have said to you. Jesus agonized over that. Then we know as he was beaten badly, taken to Golgotha, there he was crucified. And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Before that, of course, he was taken to Pilate in the Praetorium where Pilate stayed whenever he was on the emperor's business there in Jerusalem. And we know that three times Pilate tried to persuade the crowd, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. He could not find anything that would suggest guilt in the person and the work of Jesus. But he finally caved in to the crowd. Jesus, what he did for us, remember me, look. When we come to the point like this, it's so easy to become really ritualistic and just go through the movements and the motions of observing the Lord's Supper, but we need to remember Jesus Christ. We remember what He means to us. Remember that He, at this very instant, listen carefully, Jesus Christ lives to make intercession for you and me. If for one millisecond He were to quit interceding for us, we'd be done because he is the only one based on his work, this new covenant that he inaugurated with the Lord's Supper, which we'll look at in a little bit more detail later, was that which enabled that. Here's the first thing that we do to participate. We remember him. Remember who he is and what he's accomplished and continues to do for us. Secondly, this is Paul now, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, examine yourself. So let's look at verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. In so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now here's the question. This is a very important question for each of us to ask and answer. 
What does it mean when the scripture says we are to examine ourselves before we participate in the Lord's Supper? It would escape us if we didn't read this passage in its context. I hope you understand the importance of reading the whole Bible, not just selecting favorite parts of the Bible, but understand that every text has a context and each context gives us understanding as to what's going on here. So having mentioned that, let's go back up to verse 17 to try to determine what we are to examine about ourselves in order that we take the Lord's Supper in a manner that is worthy of Him. Verse 17 says, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. That's a red flag right there, isn't it? This whole church, when they gathered together, their gathering was for worse, not for betterment. He goes on to say in verse 18, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. Paul introduces the book of 1 Corinthians, and in the first chapter, as we call them chapters, he makes this statement. Some of you say, I am of Paul. Some of you say, I am of Apollos. Others of you say, I am of Cephas. That was Peter's given name, Aramaic name in his home. Peter was the name that Jesus gave him. I know you know that. And then there were some who said, I am of Christ. And then in astonishment, Paul says, and probably in near outrage, actually, he said, has Christ been divided? Were you, was Paul crucified for you? And were you baptized in the name of Paul? It was appalling to the apostle to think that in this church there were cliques and these groups were at odds with each other. They were bragging undoubtedly about the one with whom they were associated. Paul, the founder of the church, the eloquent preacher Apollos, Peter, that bold apostle of Jesus, and then the super spirituals were saying, hey, we're of Christ. You guys can click up around some mere human, but we're clicking up around the Messiah himself. This is what was going on in the church, and it was dividing the church. If you read the New Testament carefully, especially the writings of Paul, there's this heavy emphasis upon unity. And you remember in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. That is, the Holy Spirit is the one who produces unity in the body. The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Do you understand how important it is that you and I do everything in our dependence upon the power of the Holy Spirit to make sure that we contribute to the unity of the body of Christ? Do you understand that? In this church, it's true. In the larger body of Christ, it is true. Of course, we can't have relationships with people who claim to know Christ and don't know Him as Lord. They have some facsimile of Christ and not the real Christ. But what we do know is we are brothers and sisters in Christ. In Psalm 133, that beautiful psalm, short but succinct and powerful, where it says how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity talking about brothers in Christ, 
Christ had not come yet, but he was anticipated by David. David knew he was going to have a descendant who was going to be the Messiah, as it were. And so what we want to know is, why is this important? Well, it's important because the work of Jesus is justified. It's verified by the unity that is among us. Because Jesus in John 17, you know what he says to the Father. He says, Father, make them one as you and I are one so that the world will know that you sent me, Father, so that I will be known for who I really am. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Savior of the world. This is our responsibility. And this church had a very low love quotient. Let's read a little further in the passage to see how that played out. Look at verse 19. For there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. By the way, the word factions, when we think of factions, we think of cliques, do we not? This word is actually used in Paul's listings listing of the works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5, 19 and following. And this word is oftentimes translated, and rightly so in the New Testament, from Greek into English, by our word heresy. Ordinarily, when I think of a heresy, I think of false teaching. And I am right in most cases. However, do you understand if we profess one thing and we don't love each other, the way Christ has ordered us to love each other, then we are heretics is what we are. And we need to recognize that and repent of that and realize that the body of Christ was never meant to be fragmented. It is to be united. And the Holy Spirit does that work of united and uniting us. Let's look a little further. Verse 20. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. Now, what's this all about? What this is about is the church was made up of, if we would say this, and, and this is my words, it's not really in the Bible, but I think you could conclude this, two classes of people. I'm talking about socioeconomics now. And one of the things that is so appealing to me, I've said this once, I've said it a thousand times here in this place, is that in the body of Christ, there is no distinction based upon, from God's point of view, educational level, social standing, how much money I have or don't have, where I live, what I drive, what I wear. Those things are not part of God's thinking when it comes to His children. We are one in Christ. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither male nor female. There is to be no discrimination in the body of Christ. Christ is no respecter of persons. And in that, He is so much like His Father who describes Himself in the same manner. So here we had in this church at Corinth these cliques, and there was what I would call the upper class, very few people. And then the large majority of people were what we would call blue collar workers, 
many of whom, if not most of whom, were actually slaves. Slaves had a lot more liberty to move around in the Greco-Roman world than when we think of the history of slavery in the United States and other places. But nevertheless, these blue-collar people, I mean, they had to work. I'm not saying the people who were well-to-do didn't work, but their work was not as menial and as draining, perhaps, as was the work of this group. And they couldn't just get off of work when they wanted to and say to their master or to their employer, hey, I've got to go to a church meeting. It's starting right now, and if I go now, I won't be late for dinner. They had what was called an agape feast, a love feast, which was always evidently followed by the observance of the Lord's Supper. And so the people who were there early and undoubtedly were the biggest contributors to the meal that was going to be shared, they didn't want the food to get cold and they began to say, well, what are they doing anyway? Look what a small portion they bring. And it's the same thing every time. Don't they have any understanding of varieties of foods? And so these people who were there, they said, hey, let's go ahead and eat, and they can have what's left over. And so the scripture says that when these lower class people came, they were hungry because there was not enough to go around. And those who'd been there a while were drunk because they drank all the wine up. They didn't want to get it away. Look at verse 22. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Paul's getting after him here. Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. When we look at the book of Acts in the early chapters, we see a recurring theme, and that theme is that people shared their things. And this was astonishing to other people. It was a powerful tool in the hands of the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of others who were on the outside looking in and they had not seen anything like it before. I'm talking about people who are descendants of Abraham and it was in their law that they should have this kind of attitude toward the poor among them but for some reason that practice had fallen by the wayside but here we see this in this passage of scripture. We're to examine ourselves and make sure that we are contributing to the unity of the body of Christ. That we really love each other. And we care about each other. We see a brother in need, a sister in need, and we minister to that person in need. Spiritually, of course. Also, materially, when we recognize that they have a need, we care for them. We hope the best for them, of course. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says, Do you not know that you are a te temple of God and that the Spirit dwells in you? And he's talking about the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ. He talks about the individual being indwelt by the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. But in this passage, he talks about how... It's a temple. The church is a temple. And those, he goes on to say, these are strong words. He who destroys the temple, I, temple of God, I will destroy. That's strong, isn't it? 
So the Lord takes very seriously our love for each other. And we need to examine ourselves to see if we have such a love. In 1 John 4.20, the Bible says, how can you love God whom you have not seen if you're not loving your brother whom you do see? That makes good sense, doesn't it? And this is who we're called to be, to be this kind of body of believers. Now let's look at verses 29 following for who he eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. I think he's talking about the body of Christ here. For this reason, many of you are weak and sick and a number asleep. But he's talking about people who do not understand and do not work toward building up the body of Christ are in jeopardy of the discipline of God. He goes on to say as much in verses 31 and 32. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord. I hope you know that the Bible te teaches in more than one place, but the most prominent place, I think, is Hebrews chapter 12, where those whom God loves, He disciplines. He's a good Father. No discipline in your life is an indication you may not be a child of God. It could be that you're just perfect. You don't ever do anything needed, needing discipline. But probably it means that we need to check it out. When we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Look, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we're in Christ, we don't have to worry about being X'd out of the kingdom. But be sure that our Father in His love toward us will discipline us when we're out of line. And... Nothing disturbs the Father quite like our not treating each other correctly, not loving each other. Well, that's the preparation. That's a, that's a lot, isn't it? Two things, but it's jam-packed. Remember Jesus. When we come to the Lord's table today, we're to remember Him. But also, we're to examine ourselves. And we're to examine our hearts toward one another. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, If therefore you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, what are you to do? Put your offering down, make your way to your brother, and make it right with the brother. That takes a lot of humility, doesn't it? We don't want to admit we're wrong. Sometimes we haven't done anything wrong as far as we know either. That's a harder part for me. I've had to do this so many times and I just go and say, please forgive me. I didn't know I offended you, but I'm sure I did. I can tell by the way you're relating to me, and I, I sense it, and would you forgive me? It's what we're to do, isn't it? The church is to be different from the world. In the world, people get hacked off with each other, and what do they do? They just X that person off. They don't want to be around that person anymore. It's not so in the church. Of Jesus Christ. It's a different community that we're part of. But now let's spend the remaining moments to consider having prepared the message, the proclamation of the message is important too. Look again at verse 26. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. How is the Lord's Supper the gospel? This talks about the Lord's death. Of course, the crucifixion, it's huge. What transpired on the cross, unbelievable as it relates to our salvation. But there's some other things, part of that too, that seem to be absent in this statement. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But upon closer examination, and as you think about this phrase, until he comes, we proclaim the death. What happened between the death of Jesus, the substitutionary death, where he took the punishment for our sin? What happened in his life? He was buried. And then on the third day, according to the scripture, what happened? He was raised again. He ascended eventually to heaven. He is established at the right hand of the throne of God where he lives to make intercession for us. All those things take place before he comes again. Jesus is coming again. There's a young man. He's 18 years old. And he called me. I guess it was probably Thursday, and said, may I visit with you? I said, of course you can. And we figured out a good time for him. He lives out in the Northeast, and his mother has to bring him because he doesn't have a driver's license. And so she came with him, and we met in between the service last night and the Tenebrae presentation by our music arts ministry. And he came to me, and he says, I want to talk to you about the second coming of Christ. I said, okay, let's talk about it. We spent about a half hour talking about it. And he was concerned about getting ready. Not just himself, but us getting ready. We need to get ready, don't we? Jesus is coming again. There's no doubt about it. He's closer today than he was yesterday. We know that much. He's coming. Read Matthew 24. Read Mark 13, read 1 Thessalonians, read 2 Thessalonians, read Revelation. Jesus is coming again. It seems like he's coming soon at times. But we're to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is what I told him. Sweet guy, I didn't want to hurt his feelings at all. I didn't want to quench the Spirit's work in his life because he, he's really intense about it. And he should be. But I said, look, we don't know when he's coming exactly. But what we do know is we've got time now, and it's not just for us to get ready. That's what he was saying. We need to get ready. Well, we get ready by sharing Jesus with other people. That's it. There are a lot of people that don't know the Lord, and if Jesus were to come today, they would go out into eternity separated from God forever. We want people to come to know Christ, don't we? Yes, we do. And so we want to be in sync with the Lord, understanding that when we observe the Lord's Supper, we proclaim, preach the Lord's death, the gospel, until He comes. Remember when Paul came to Corinth? He describes how he came in the second chapter of this great epistle. He said, I do not come to you with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith not, might not rest 
on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. We need to be careful about clicking up around persuasive speakers from a human point of view. We want to be sure that we're hearing from the Lord. And no mouthpiece of the Lord is perfect. Nobody gets it right all the time. But what we do know is if a person is depending on the Lord and looking at the Word and asking God, show me, Lord, what is here for the people that you call me to teach the Bible to. We want to be people who have such teachers and we want to be aware of what the Bible teaches all of us so that we can measure what we hear by the truth of God's Word. And the good news is Paul says, hey, look, I was no hot stuff as a speaker. You know that. And if you read his writings, he got a lot of criticism from this church about how pitiful he was as a public speaker. They were measuring him by Apollos, for sure, the great orator, or even Cephas, Peter, who was passionate, for sure. But what we need to know is that the kingdom of God, according to 1 Corinthians 4.20, is not a matter of words, but of power. The preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, 1 Corinthians 1.18. But to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. What is the power of God? It's the Spirit of God communicating the truth about the cross of Christ and the subsequent resurrection of Christ to us. Let's look again at this passage of Scripture in verses 24 and 25. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, the bread, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do it when you drink it in remembrance of me. I'd like to explore the idea of the new covenant in his blood with you in the remaining moments. If you go back to Jeremiah 31, we read it together earlier. These words were written under inspiration of the Spirit of God through the prophet Jeremiah approximately 600 years before Jesus gave his life for us, instituting the new covenant. God's patient, isn't he? Look at verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Here's the first part of this covenant. Ezekiel, Jesus, as he prayed, alluded to this. In Ezekiel 36, 26, God says, I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. What was the first covenant, the old covenant written on? Tablets of stone. What is the new covenant written on? 
our hearts. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. And notice what Ezekiel says about this new covenant. God speaks through him. He says, I will remove from you your heart of stone. We all need heart transplants. We arrive dead spiritually. We need a heart transplant. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you, listen to that word, give. Salvation is a gift. I will give you a new heart. And I'm going to write on your heart these things. This new covenant. A covenant that's about grace. It's not about sacraments. It's not about good works. It's about grace given to us in the person of Jesus Christ and giving us eternal life that we can't earn nor deserve so that we can know Him and be the people God created us to be in that sense. That's huge, isn't it? When we think about the new covenant. I will be their God and they shall be my people. He included more than descendants of Abraham here, by the way. He had promised Abraham that not only would the world, his descendants, be blessed through the offspring that was promised Abraham and Sarah, but also all the nations, i.e. all the Gentiles, the non-Jews, would have that possibility too. Aren't you glad? I'm a Gentile. I had the DNA deal, Ancestry.com. I was so excited. I said, I'm going to find out I got some Jewish blood in me. I am so excited. Because my grandmother's maiden name was Solomon. Unbelievable. I said, it can't be, but I got some Jewish blood in me. You know, when it came back, I read that thing and I said, I could have told them this. 82% Anglo, about 17% Danish or whatever or the Vikings were. And then the other, I can't remember what it was. I was so disappointed. I said, wasted $100 on nothing, you know. <laughs> Look, it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. A true Jew, according to Romans chapter 2, the last couple of verses says, a true Jew is not one outwardly. There's no physical kind of mark that would indicate that you are a true Jew. But a true Jew is one inwardly who has had his heart or her heart circumcised God's done his work and we will be his people we are his people oh I'm so grateful for the Jewish nation I'm so grateful for Israel I pray looking forward to the day when all the eyes of those who are descendants of Abraham are going to be open when God delivers Israel, according to Ezekiel 38 and 39, from an attack from a coalition of Russia, Persia, Iran. Does this begin to sound familiar today? You know what Russia's doing now? They're moving. They're on the move. There's a coalition there, and then Libya, and then part of Ethiopia perhaps, maybe the Sudan, that region. And they're going to come against, and read it, going to be a miraculous delivery and the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, are going to see Jesus is the Messiah. That's the beginning of the tribulation. That's the door that opens the tribulation period. I'm on a whole another, another subject here. Apologize for that. But we belong, we are the people of God. We know Jesus. We are in the family of God. Praise the Lord. Look at verse 34. 
They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. In the book of 1 John, chapter 2, John the Apostle talks about an anointing that all the believers had. He said, you don't need somebody to teach you. You got the anointing. You know what he was talking about? The Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. If you know Jesus, the Spirit dwells within you. And He will teach you from the Word of God. He will help you to understand these things. So we know the Lord. Last night, we had a lady and her two sons baptized. Terry Samaniego, her sons Zeth and Ezra. Those boys gave testimony of their faith in the Lord. And then she gave her testimony. She's probably in her mid-30s, would be my guess, early to mid-30s. And she said, I have known the Lord since I was a child, but I never had been baptized as a believer. And I'm coming tonight to say to the church, I'm making a fresh start in my walk with God. You may be here today and you've never been baptized by immersion as a believer in Jesus Christ. Baptism doesn't save you, but it's your testimony. It's your coming out party. You need to get baptized as a believer. Don't be ashamed of Jesus in His words. Be glad for the hope that's within you. It's your privilege to be baptized. Come out. You're part of the people of God. And she said, I knew the Lord. Talking about Terry Samaniego again. I knew the Lord when I was a child. I did too. Did you? Children can know the Lord. You don't have to be an adult to know the Lord. I came to the Lord as a boy. I remember it like it was last year instead of 60 years ago. The scripture goes on to say, the last part of this covenant, this all is so rich. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Oh, is that a breath of fresh air? As far as the east is from the west, so far I have removed their transgressions from them. This is celebratory. The Lord's Supper that we're about to take, and men, if you'll come, make your way here. Come, deacons. We're about to partake of the Lord's Supper. It's a time of celebration. Reflection, yes. But celebration. And if you don't know Christ, don't partake of this. This is not your supper. But you can know Jesus. That's what I would hope would come from today in part. That if you don't know Christ, you'd say, I want to know you, Jesus. I want to be forgiven of my sin so that you won't remember my sins anymore. I want you to take control of my life. Would you bow your head now? If you've never received Christ, given Him control of your life, today is the day of your salvation. In your heart, say, Lord, forgive me for my sin. Thank you for facing all the agony you went through, taking my punishment for my sin upon yourself, being raised from the dead. Thank you, Lord. I want to trust you fully today so I can partake of this Lord's Supper, understanding what it means. Thank you, Lord, as we come to this moment that we have such a great Savior. And thank you, Father, that you are such a great God to us too. Help us to take it in a worthy manner. 
Lord, help us to take a moment to think about people we're estranged from. And let's, Lord, give us the power to let go of that, to want to make it right. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.